Well, good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enterprise Free Library, and welcome. As someone said, oh, we need more seats, I said that's a good problem to have. We are so pleased that you are here for a very special edition of our Eddie and Sylvia Brown Lecture Series. The Pratt Library is starting early on its Black History Month celebration with this evening's wonderful guest, and we are very honored to have here tonight Emory University professor and author, and I think someone that has some pretty strong Baltimore ties, Dr. Lawrence P. Jackson. You can applaud. Now, he will be discussing and also uh, signing copies of his book, The Indignant Generation, A Narrative History of African American Writers and Critics, 1934 to 1960. And this is a great program to introduce uh, a wonderful month of programming. And as I mentioned, this is part of a very generous gift by Eddie and Sylvia Brown, their family foundation. They allow us to bring in wonderful speakers as well as fund the African-American collection. The materials, the databases, all the things that you see in the African-American collection here are part of their gift. So without further ado, um, we would like to introduce a person who has been helping us with our Kwanzaa celebrations for the past more than 20 years here at the Pratt Library and throughout our system. So please welcome tonight our dear friend and a cousin of tonight's special guest, Mr. Charles Duggar. I'd like to say good evening. Could I ask everyone to stand up if they would for a moment? Because the time is tight, symbolically we want to pour this water that if we use our imaginations is here and offer libations, honor and praise to our ancestors. As Brother Larry's written about in his first book, Brother Ralph Ellison in his present book about those of us who demanded to be heard. So as we say, I pour libations in honor of, could you say, those sheroes and heroes in your life that you know have been consequential for you and me to be here. I pour libations for Charles Clark, Geneva Clark. Please say some names. William and Vivian Taylor, Nathaniel and Bernice Mitchell. Melton James Constance, Linda Barbara and Margaret Duggar. Thank you very much. And normally we would take a little longer, but time is tight. But we have to, in a monumental city like Baltimore, make those mental and spiritual monuments always be with us. A long time ago, I was at Booker T, and I had a beautiful English teacher named Betty Williams, and she had us a challenge to learn some poetry. So poem that has stuck with me a long time, and then it's beautiful that Brother Larry and I later, of course, at different time periods, pledged the same fraternity, Kappa Alpha Psi, and they had you memorize this poem. It's called Invictus. And the reason why I chose it, because it talks about, in that spirit, the kind of spirit that my cousin has to be on his third book now to trace the family history of his father's side of the family. He's serious. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Thank you for writing in that spirit, Brother Larry. I had a few introductions in my time, but I was a little nervous to follow uh, my cousin Charles Duggar, the best man at my wedding. Um, somebody who has meant so much to me by the example that they've provided me. So thank you so very much, um, Charlie. It's wonderful to uh, get a chance to speak before um, an audience of so many friends and family. And uh, just for those of you who have had the opportunity to buy the book, and I think there will be a few more opportunities tonight, 
I did want to call your attention to the dedication page to this volume. The book is called The Indignant Generation, A Narrative History of African-American Writers and Critics, 1934 to 1960. But on the dedication page, it was particularly important um, for me to recognize uh, the people that made this possible. And I, I dedicate uh, my books to my parents, uh, my mother, Verna Jackson, who um, has, has given me everything and uh, continues to give me everything, and my late father, Nathaniel Jackson, Jr., who passed away in 1990. But I was, I was really thinking about so many of the other men who had impacted my life, some of them merely as role models, people that I saw in my neighborhood who shoveled the snow for their walk, who carried in the groceries, who fixed the cars when the cars wouldn't start, who cut the grass, who made sure that the people who lived alone had something. Um, some of them were men from my church who uh, were members of the Brotherhood of St. Andrew. I'm a member of, uh, or used to be a member, grew up in St. James Episcopal Church in Lafayette Square, and um, who made sure that it was safe getting from the cars into the church or who helped give out food to the needy. And you, you know, who greeted you when you came to the church. And I, I felt like these men, some of them are among us tonight. Um, some of them are, are with us tonight. I felt like these men um, were, were uh, in danger of being erased. So I wanted to make a very small gesture to, um, to try to acknowledge them. But I definitely want to just um, draw your attention to um, my, my, my grandmother's surviving brother, Harold Macklin, who's with us tonight. Um, who was a World War II veteran, a Korea veteran, and someone who my own mother today counts on very much. But this is a, a person who is, is one of the silent heroes among us. So I, I also had to thank um, Ashley Johnson and Judy Cooper and Carla Hayden, um, Judy Cooper and Carla Hayden with the library, for making uh, my talk possible tonight. If you, if you don't mind, if you will indulge me, I'm going to read a little bit from, um, from this volume. And uh, I hope that you will have the chance to get into it. But I, I thought that it might be interesting to sort of begin um, in media res. As um, you all might not know this, but, but my, my old English teacher from high school is also among us tonight, Dr. Vincent Fitzpatrick. And uh, he taught me so very many things, but I think that was, that was, probably, that was probably one of them. Hugh Gloucester, who would go on to serve as the president of Atlanta's Morehouse College from 1967 to 1987, had nearly completed his doctorate in English at New York University when he took a trip to visit his mother in Tennessee in August 1942. 34-year-old Gloucester was a light brown-skinned man of moderate stature, toward five and a half feet tall, clean-shaven, his hair brushed back from the front with an upright, almost military bearing. Like most professional black academics, he had not finished his terminal degree, but with a master's in English from Atlanta University, he'd been a college teacher for nearly 10 years. Although a PhD degree was gaining in, in importance for college teaching, only a handful of blacks had the ability to win admission to an English literature PhD program, spend several consecutive years in coursework and language training, sit for exams, and write a thesis. Harvard, which had admitted a handful of African-Americans to Ph.D. training, required proficiency in Old Icelandic, Old and Middle German, Old and Middle English, Latin, and modern languages. And, you know, just as context, I, I, had, to take, um, I had to take Middle English and had to pass uh, two language proficiencies exa proficiency exams for a Ph.D. in English and American Literature in 1997. Limited to a handful of progressive northern universities, the black teacher then faced a narrow, segregated job market. Black professors needed to obtain and keep a teaching post as soon as one became available immediately upon completion of a master's degree. The capstone of an African-American's career in 1942 was at Howard University, the highest plateau to which he or she might aspire. The very best of the black humanists like Sterling Brown, J. Saunders Redding, or Melvin B. Tolson would parse together a summer here and a semester there at a good northern university, such as University of Chicago or New York University, where it was possible to find decent quarters in nearby black neighborhoods and, over a considerable period of time, cobble together a degree. But none of these distinguished scholars ever finished a doctorate. Unlike most of his better-known peers, over time, Gloucester eventually earned his Ph.D. degree. 
Most rare were the truly exceptional black literary scholars like Arthur P. Davis and John Lavelle, who were able to earn scholarships outright and finish their graduate work at Columbia and Berkeley, respectively. That August, Gloucester journeyed by train to Memphis from Atlanta, where he was teaching at Morehouse, the small, prestigious Baptist men's college. He knew the country between the two places well, since he'd been traversing the ground with some regularity for many years. He had grown up and finished high school in Memphis at Lemoyne College, really a normal school, and then gone on to Atlanta for his young manhood, completing his B.A. degree at Morehouse in 1931 and taking his master's degree at Atlanta University in 1933 on the same historic campus. Gloucester was a race man, a member of a new breed of black educators, upstanding and forthright. He was not embarrassed about his racial ancestry, and he did not feel the need to apologize or compensate for it. If anything, he wanted to know more about his heritage. He had founded in 1938 an organization of black college-level English professors called the College Language Association, which remains in existence. The organization paralleled the Modern Language Association, which had admitted African Americans, like William Scarborough, in its earliest years, but after the 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court decision had been unable to bring blacks in numbers into the annual conference hotels. The exception to this apparent rule was Howard University's English Department Chairman Charles Eaton Birch, a ranking scholar of the 18th century, and British novelist Daniel Defoe. A native of Bermuda and an Ohio State University PhD, Birch had given a paper at the MLA conference in the 1920s. However, in Gloucester's time, merely six blacks were members of the MLA. His academic work continued the fight for militant African-American pride and recognition. In 1942, Gloucester was writing a dissertation that he would call American Negro Fiction from Charles Chestnut to Richard Wright, a direct assertion regarding the value of black literature and an identification of interest with the two black novelists most explicitly engaging politics and social conditions. The Howard English professors Davis and Lavelle, by contrast, had written dissertations on Isaac Watts's hymns and the Fourier movement of the 1840s, respectively. Gloucester's investment was in black literature. He was steeped in black life, history, and culture, and the struggle for black rights. He had made enough of a peace with the racist laws of the South to live there, but he was impatient and vocal. Customarily, the Atlanta to Memphis trains changed in Birmingham. Late on Saturday evening in the third week of August, Gloucester boarded the Sunnyland, a passenger train that traveled up from Alabama and through Mississippi before stretching into Memphis. By the time the train reached Amory, Mississippi, about 20 miles over the state line, the single Jim Crow coach had become overcrowded, and a boisterous clot of late-night traveling black passengers stood in the aisle. Of all the Jim Crow indignities, educated and mannered blacks resented the segregated railroad cars in particular. In their memoirs, they tended to single out the experience that they suffered at the hands of the conductors who had police powers and enforced racial caste. Probably the black upwardly mobile class chafed because the situations on the car so often defied logic. The railroad passenger coach behind Gloucester, for example, had only two passengers in it. He asked the conductor if the white passengers behind him might be moved to the white-only section to ease the overcrowding in the Jim Crow car. On more than one occasion that evening, Professor Gloucester insisted on his request. When the train reached Tupelo, Mississippi, the conductor appeared with three policemen who asked simply, where is the nigger? After the conductor's positive identification, the four white men dragged Hugh Gloucester from his seat and threw him bodily from the train onto the station platform. The policemen then beat the Morehouse professor on the head, face, and body for five minutes in front of the open door to the Jim Crow car offering a sustained lesson in Jim Crow protocol to the black passengers. The Sunnyland pulled away, and Gloucester was taken to the Tupelo police station, beaten again, and incarcerated for having sassed the conductor. After being searched and denied permission to contact his relatives, Gloucester was nearly beaten a third time for having money in his pocket and hand-tooled luggage. The policeman threatened him with a stretch on the Tupelo chain gang. Toward evening on Sunday, almost 24 hours into his ordeal, 
the Frisco Railroad agent appeared and again threatening Gloucester with a circuit on the chain gang for violating law, coerced him into signing documents relieving the Frisco Railroad of culpability. The agent then transported the prisoner 30 miles back to Amory, Mississippi, where Gloucester admitted to committing his offense of impudence and paid the local mayor a fine of $10. The railroad agent, acting with police powers, then released Gloucester to his brother-in-law, W.C. McFarlane, who took him immediately to the Jane Terrell Memorial Hospital in Memphis. Having survived the police clubs and an evening in a putrid jail cell, Professor Gloucester received treatment for his injuries. He was lucky. Black men were killed, even in the late 1940s, and in the Upper South for violating segregation ordinances on train cars. Gloucester's inability to secure basic human rights in the U.S. South emphasizes the intellectual crisis for assertive black writers and critics of public culture. The ordinary day-to-day style of living discouraged assertiveness, but rather legally mandated diffidence and timidity. From what source would stir rigorous questioning, let alone defiance? How much literal independence of thought was possible on the college campuses? Obviously, if minor breaches of unwritten protocols might result in near-death experiences, public commentary, even literary criticism, brought on a potentially hazardous complications. The, uh, the book that I've... That I've um, worked on over the last nine years, tries to cover what I have described in um, some of the interviews and in some some places as <clears throat> sort of a new literary period. Now, I'm, I, 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 I want to give a disclaimer. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, and I, I, you know, can see there we've got um, English professors out here tonight, you know, who can sort of support the idea that very many people have sort of gone over some rich terrain in the past. So what I wanted to do was to sort of um, come up with a coherent period that would enable us to talk about what took place between the Harlem Renaissance and the black arts movement of the 1960s. So, you know, we sort of have this this thing that might happen to us if we go to college and we get classes in African-American literature, and they say, you know, we've got this fantastic Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s. And then the next thing is, you know, we say, well, let's talk about this movement that took place in the 60s. So I I wanted to talk about a movement that was at the center of the 20th century and one that involved some of the the really the strongest prose writers and poets um the people that we that we know so well today. I mean, we know their work really by heart. Of course, this is the work of Zora Hurston, of Ralph Ellison, of Richard Wright, of James Baldwin, of Gwendolyn Brooks. And I've also tried to introduce people into this this milieu into this conversation that ordinarily are sort of skirted um, to the side. So um, Anne Petrie, whose reputation is growing and who was one of the key figures during the 1940s and 1950s, she's, I, I tried to move her a bit back towards the center. William Gardner Smith, who was from Philadelphia, who was a, almost a teenage phenomenon, who published his first book when he was 21, who was invited into the upper crust of American literary circles. I tried to, to bring him into, um, into this a little bit more. And we really had a very rich period in the 1950s where um, some of the, uh, the work of Mary Emma Graham, she has a black novel project, and she talks about um, more than 100 novels are published in the 1950s, written by African Americans, and most frequently with you know, just a couple of notable exceptions with African American themes. We only know a handful of the writers from the 1950s, you know. So I've tried to, to recover some people. I thought I might read a paragraph or two that um, give you a sense of the technical, uh, not so technical, of the staging of the, um, of the book. And um, I, I will, you know, read a sort of a laundry list of about 40 people so you'll know precisely who I'm talking about. And also give you some context for the title of the um, of the book. The title is drawn from an exchange between Ralph Ellison and Richard Wright. And this is just a, just a short paragraph to begin. In 1940, Ralph Ellison applauded the indignant consciousness of Richard Wright's character, Bigger Thomas. He praised the black character by writing, he, Bigger, has what Hegel called the indignant consciousness. And because of this, he is more human than those who sent him to his death. For it was they, not he, 
who fostered the dehumanizing conditions which shaped his personality. When the indignant consciousness becomes the theoretical consciousness, indignant man is aware of his historical destiny and fights to achieve it. Would that all Negroes were psychologically as free, as bigger, and as capable of positive action. 27-year-old Ellison understood well the impact of Native Sun and its electricity for black writers and intellectuals, a group who theoretically transformed their indignation at Jim Crow to manufacture a strata of artworks that secured and pronounced a new era of psychological freedom for African Americans. But the black artist's startling aesthetic, institutional, and commercial successes have overshadowed history's awareness of their positive action, to use Ellison's phrase again, or contribution to a group historical destiny. And again, those of you who remember the work of Franz Fanon will remember that this was one of his um, very important uh, criteria for, you know, sort of the black writers and activists and intellectuals. You know, he says you've got to um, carry out this mission of historical destiny. Individual black writers did so well, especially between 1940 and 1953, that sometimes the idea of the artist operating as a cohort has been obscured. And now going to another passage. Richard Wright is, um, his career roughly falls, I mean not even roughly, I mean it exactly falls within this 25 year span that I'm dealing with in the indignant generation. I mean he sort of starts publishing in 1934-1935 and he dies at the very end of 1960. So he's sort of the giant person. And, and, you know, sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, it's the Richard Wright era. And sometimes you also hear the uh, term the integration um, period or the integration era. And I, I just have a, a short discussion um, where I try to tease this out a bit and uh, talk about, um, in some ways, the inadequacy of those, of those terms or those, um, those framing uh, uh, terms. Richard Wright was the dominant figure of African-American literature from the time he started publishing in 1935 to his death in 1960. His concerns to develop a literary style that competed on the stage of world opinion and a literature of ideas were ambitions widely shared by his fellow black writers. Wright's lifelong relationships with writers in Chicago and New York touch on the prime geographies and include very many of the personalities that wrote the books that proved the downfall of racial segregation in American public life and the maturity of African-American literature. And the other prime geography that I bring into the book is Washington, D.C. and Howard University. And, and also Baltimore. I mean, I, I spend a, a great deal of energy on uh, Waters Turpin, the creative writer who taught at Morgan, and Nick Aaron Ford, who was the chairman of the English department at Morgan for, um, for uh, probably a 25-year period from 1945 until um, the early 1970s. Furthermore, never before had so many liberal integrated institutions been available to more than a handful of black writers and thinkers. The Federal Writers Project, the Communist Party and its umbrella groups, like the National Negro Congress and the Committee for the Negro and the Arts, the Julius Rosenwald Foundation, the Artist Colony at Yaddo. All these famously welcomed and cultivated African-American artists at one point or other during the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s. But to name the period after its star is yet a misnomer. Wright, whose influence, reputation, and intellectual energy may have dominated the movement briefly during the early 40s, largely disappeared after he left for France and the widespread overturning of social realist literature took place. Nor were all the writers, like the famous iconoclast Zorno Hurston, or the members of the two Harlem writers' collectives of the late 1940s and 1950s, committed integrationist. Certainly black writers wish to see the prohibitions of segregation struck down, but integration into the mainstream was hardly uncritically endorsed. One writer thought of integration as a drowning man gasping for air. It was rather like the action of one who kicks and splashes frantically to save himself from drowning and suddenly finds that he's reached a shelf on which he can stand in the riverbed. His objective was not to shelf, but just to be saved. I kicked and splashed in all directions, and suddenly there I was. Swimming in the direction of integration had one greatly tangible benefit, which was to increase the number of educational facilities for black America. Perhaps the principal component of the sweeping historical change was the bona fide generation of African Americans with access to colleges, graduate schools, and liberal institutions who made up a reading public 
and comprised the group of artists that came of age during the World War II and Cold War eras. Redding's life, uh, I'm, I'm talking about Son, Jay Saunders Redding, the uh, Hampton Institute uh, critic who eventually um, uh, became one of the first people to teach at, an, first African Americans to be on the full-time faculty of an Ivy League institution. He taught at Cornell University. Um, their frustration and aspiration touched on similar yearnings experienced by a large and historic cadre that included Alger Adams, who published under the name Philip B.K., William Attaway, James Baldwin, Alden Bland, Edward Bland, Arna Bontomps, Gwendolyn Brooks, Lloyd Brown, Sterling Brown, Alice Browning, Anatola Boyard, Horace Caton, John Henry Clark, Harold Cruz, Arthur P. Davis, Charles T. Davis, William Demby, Owen Dodson, Ralph Ellison, Nick Aaron Ford, Fern Gaydon, Eugene Gordon, Richard Gibson, Hugh Gloucester, Rosa Guy, Lorraine Hansberry, Robert Hayden, Chester Himes, George Wiley Henderson, Carl Moses Holman, Eugene Holmes, Langston Hughes, Zerner Hurston, Blyden Jackson, Leroy Jones, who later became a Mary Baraka, Ernest Kaiser, John Oliver Killens, Curtis Lucas, Paul Marshall, Julian Mayfield, Claude McKay, Marion Minus, Albert Murray, Ann Petrie, Dorothy Porter. Uh, Dorothy Porter was the librarian at Howard, and regrettably, I wasn't able to go very far, but that is a project for some of us in the audience. We must do more about the important work of Dorothy Porter. Willard Savoy, William Chancellor Smith, William Gardner Smith, Will Thomas, Melvin B. Tolson, Waters Turpin, Margaret Walker, Theodore Ward, Dorothy West, Richard Wright, and Frank Yerby. So that's sort of A to Y, um, you know, the, um, the, the writers that I spend a lot of time dealing with and, and trying to pull together. And so the book also talks about the white writers and critics who were integral during this period. And the white liberals were very much at the forefront and had a lot to lose for participating um, with African-American writers and intellectuals and making this investment to see that they were published. They include critics like Buckland Moon, Lillian Smith, the writer Lillian Smith, and Thomas Sancton. And they made it possible for people like Ralph Ellison and Ann Petrie and Chester Himes to get book contracts, to meet publishers and agents, and to place their work in magazines. Edwin Embry of the Julius Rosenwald Fund administered a large philanthropic grant to black artists from the 1920s through the 1940s which the lion's share of black creative writers during this era received. And this enabled them to work for a year or two years without having to have jobs. Chester Himes always said that he left the United States and basically lost his marriage because every time he was working on a book, he had to work as a janitor. And he said that psychologically it was self-defeating. He couldn't, he, couldn't, he couldn't endure this. Fascinatingly, in an era of overt, palpable bigotry, the spearhead of the integration movement included the best of white America's liberal intelligentsia. This is the cohort that yanked the country into the new era. The indignant generation is their story. Let me, um, let me conclude by um, sharing with you um, sort of the, the final paragraphs um, in the book. Maybe somebody, how are we for time? I don't hear my how are we for time, folks. Who's keeping, nobody's keeping our clock. Well, then we've got plenty of time. We've got plenty of time. Um, this, I, I just want to give you a sense of the way the, uh, the book winds up. And, um, you know, the, the argument that I'm making is that you have um, artists and writers who also take their activism very seriously in the 1930s and 1940s and are deliberately writing works that they know will prick the public conscience that will help to overturn not just uh, racial segregation, but actually the um, conditions in urban America especially. I mean, sometimes there's an overture to what's going on in uh, rural America. But very much, you know, I mean, again, Richard Wright and Ann Petrie are known for these fiction works that are attempting to help us address the crisis um, of the ghetto and the slums. And um, you know, we mentioned um, Isabel Wilkerson and this very important and very valuable work, The Warmth of, the, of Other Suns. That's a Richard Wright quote. Um, that's a language of Richard Wright. But the, um, the, the, um, the poverty and the unemployment and the juvenile delinquency and the high crime and the alcoholism <laughs> and the domestic abuse that we associate with um, what used to be called the black slum and then became called the black ghetto, this happens immediately as soon as people move in numbers to the north. 
So, you know, there's this, there's a, sometimes there's a sense that we have that there was a, there was a, um, 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 uh, a utopia at one point. But actually, when you read these novelists from the 1930s and 1940s, I mean, they're identifying a crisis as soon as we have numbers of African Americans in Chicago, in Baltimore, in Washington, in New York, in Newark, in Philadelphia. And then we have a shift that takes place where the writers, they, they say, you know, you've got to climb this mountaintop and show that you're not a sloganeer, that you're not a propagandist, that you are somebody who's interested in high art. And you have, you know, this remarkable work that's produced by Ralph Ellison, Gwendolyn Brooks, James Baldwin, and Petrie, you know, absolutely first-class writing that wins all of the awards. But that still doesn't do it. And then in the second half of the 1950s, a little bit before then, you actually have black writers um, deciding that, look, we've got to decide something, um, we've got to do some new things. And it has very much to do with the decolonization movements internationally. Their frustrations with domestic U.S. politics in spite of things like the Brown decision and their determination to sort of, um, you know, to, to, to make us, to make black Americans an African diaspora people, you know, so that uh, Caribbean Americans don't have to sort of cut off their important uh, Caribbean ancestry, so that um, um, recent African immigrants don't have to abandon what it means to, you know, sort of have a, a profound ethnic or national tie. And, um, you know, this is the, the last group that I sort of mentioned, and it, 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 it coheres around a historic event. The combination of radical politics, militant defiance, and black writers groups, the hallmark of the 1960s, all cohered in February 1961 when black Americans learned of the assassination of the Congolese Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba. And in Richard Wright's final public address in November of 1960, this is about two weeks before he died, he is giving this address, and he's going to expose, he's actually going to expose Ralph Ellison and James Baldwin, who um, Richard Wright thought, basically he thought that James Baldwin was working with the Central Intelligence Agency. But um, he thought that Ralph Ellison had allowed himself to be used by the uh, popular media and the big-time publishers in the culture industry. So he'd written this paper, and he's sort of going to expose them, not by name, but if you, know, you sort of understood, you would know who they were. And he gets through a couple of paragraphs, and he closes his notes, according to one report. There's a historical controversy over which took place. And he launches into sort of a foreign policy speech, and he says, we've got to leave this man Lumumba alone, and Lumumba has got to be allowed to run the Congo the way he sees fit. Okay, and we all know what, um, you know, so what happens. Um, when they learned of the assassination of Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba, Belgian and UN troops had militarily supported the rebellion of the resource-rich Katanga province, then with advisors and U.S. intelligence reports, orchestrated the coup against Lumumba's government that led to his murder. The Soviet Union publicly accused the UN Secretary Dag Hammarskjöld of conspiring to assassinate Lumumba, and U.S. Ambassador Adlai Stevenson addressed the Security Council to prop Hammarskjöld back up. During this session on February 15, 1961, 50 African Americans distinguished by black armbands and veils packed the visitors' gallery of the Security Council to hear Stevenson's speech. The group included Max Roach, the jazz drummer, Abby Lincoln, the vocalist and his wife, Leroy Jones, and Harlem Writers Guild members Maya Angelou and Rosa Guy. When the activists stood, silent, stood in silence to protest Stevenson's remarks, security officers approached them and tussling and loud outbursts ensued. Outside of the UN building, more demonstrations and fistfights between police and Lumumba supporters took place. The unprecedented public denunciation of Hammerskold and the ensuing melee made the international news. The demonstration was the culmination of the fiery speeches of Julian Mayfield and Lorraine Hansberry at the Negro Writers Conference, Richard Gibson's coordination of the Cuba visit so that the black intellectuals might see an outbreaking revolution up close and then a famous September 1960 visit to Harlem by Fidel Castro and his meeting with Malcolm X. The embarrassed UN Undersecretary Ralph Bunch formally apologized to his UN colleagues for the demonstrations, which he claimed were in no way representative of the American Negro. A month later, in March 1961, Lorraine Hansberry, who had not been at the United Nations, did her part by apologizing for Ralph Bunch in the pages of the New York Times to the widow of Patrice Lumumba. 
Hansberry's speedy and flip rebuttal of the highest-ranking black American international diplomat proved that she had outgrown her usefulness for much of the liberal press. In an article she wrote that April for the black publication, The Urbanite, Hansberry Socratically rejected her Western education, including that racist, Camus, and supported Algeria for Algerians. And she was filled with praise for the taught essay by James Baldwin, A Negro Essays the Negro Mood, which the Times had published on March 12th. Baldwin had planned to attend the UN demonstrations, and in his report called The Negro's Status in This Country, Not Only a Cruel Injustice, but a Grave National Liability. He pointed to the sit-in movement as an act of faith that took as its creed the essential decency of white people. But Baldwin knew that the assumptions held by the black collegians were in the process of change, and he said so. Furthermore, the UN protest had not been made by the colleges, but had involved groups like Leroy Jones and Calvin Hicks's On Guard, by then Old Guard black radical and communist Benjamin Davis, ex-gang members who turned Muslim, the Harlem Writers Guild, Abby Lincoln's Cultural Association for Women of African Heritage, James Lawson's United African Nationalist Movement, Dan Watts's Liberation Committee for Africa, the African Nationalist Pioneer Movement, and the African American Muslim Groups. Although the Nation of Islam formally denied involvement in the protest, national spokesman Malcolm X assured the press that he refused to condemn any other black nationalist groups. Informally, Malcolm X was the mentor and confidant of many of the activist leaders, and colleagues of his, like Louis X. Farrakhan, believed him to be the key organizer. In any event, the Nation of Islam, or black Muslims as they were frequently called, became indelibly, if erroneously, connected to the radical militancy and proto-revolutionary activism. In the public mind, Malcolm X and other Muslims appeared as the opposite of, the, of civil rights-concerned domestic, nonviolent, integrationist activism. Baldwin rightly understood that the righteous indignation behind the civil rights movement of students and ministers in the South would evolve quite differently in the northern black ghetto. In his earlier years, James Baldwin had served as a foil for what the radicalism of social realism seemed to threaten, but he was no longer keeping the lid on things. He told his liberal friends that it was quite impossible to argue with the Muslim concerning the actual state of Negroes in this country. The truth, after all, is the truth. Baldwin, the product of the Congress for Cultural Freedom, then quoted Lorraine Hansberry, scorning the politics of racial integration, during a January roundtable discussion with Langston Hughes, editor Emile Capuya, and literary critic Alfred Kazin. Hansberry had told Kazin, who had been faithfully tendering the moderate liberal position, that she was not at all sure that I want to be integrated into a burning house. We've heard this quote a lot. 1960, Lorraine Hansberry. Writing plays about Toussaint Louverture and the principled Mau Mau violence in Kenya, the playwright took the opportunity to remind Kazin that the 20th century's famed portraits of black American life, Faulkner's Dilsey from Sound and the Fury was the case in point, were satisfactory only because whites had never sat in a Negro home, heard the nuances of hatred, of total contempt, from their black servants. Then she confronted Kazin personally. For you, she's talking about Dilsey, the portrait of Dilsey, this is a fulfilling image because you haven't either. Few whites had interest in sitting in the kitchen and listening to denunciations by blacks of the serving class as a necessary requirement for the health of the country. But the new order of the day was obvious to James Baldwin. The American Negro can no longer, nor will he ever again, be controlled by white America's image of him. This fact has everything to do with the rise of Africa in world affairs. Leading the way in outrunning the white American image of blacks and the federal government itself was Robert F. Williams. Williams outfoxed a government dragnet in early 1961. You all might remember Robert Williams as the um, head of the NAACP in a small town in North Carolina, and uh, he advocated armed self-defense when uh, approached by the Ku Klux Klan, which led to him losing his position in the NAACP and then ultimately being um, persecuted by um, law enforcement agencies. Shortly after uh, Williams' arrival there, the Kennedy administration sent trained militia to Cuba to topple the socialist regime, almost in the manner of Napoleon's General Leclerc going to Haiti to reinstitute slavery. 
But after the operation was underway, Kennedy lost his nerve and refused air and naval support to the stalled anti-Castro militants. The Bay of Pigs disaster went on to join other key moments in the defeat of Western imperialism, like the 1954 French defeat in Vietnam at Dien Bien Phu. Julian Mayfield, implicated in supplying weapons to Robert F. Williams and enabling his escape from the United States, and whose essays had increasingly characterized the militant rejection of assimilation, fled in, in September 1961 for Ghana. He served as one of Kwame Nkrumah's advisors until the Ghanaian government was overthrown during Nkrumah's visit to North Vietnam in 1966. William Gardner Smith joined Mayfield in Ghana from France, and Maya Angelou joined them from the United States. W.B. Du Bois and his wife Shirley Graham Du Bois arrived in 1961 and became citizens in 1963. And then in early 1962, Richard Gibson, facing federal indictment, pushed off for Algiers to become a spokesperson for the FLN, the uh, Liberation Front, partially filling the void left by Franz Fanon, who died in December 1961. Black American writers engaged in a second wave of expatriation, but no longer to find acceptance in a Western country that would allow them the personal liberty to define themselves individually. As Baldwin had noted, this had everything to do with the rise of Africa in world affairs. Like Joseph Sinke, 130 years before them, the vanguard now determined to set its sails in reverse. Thank you very much. I think we have a moment or two. We can ask some questions. Yes, sir. Carl um, Cruz, who I, I think wrote one of the um, great social criticisms, right into your book writing, um, both during the time of the Black Black Arts Movement and using um, Paula Renaissance as a prototype for a Black aesthetic. Um, Harold Cruz is actually, um, I'm, I'm sorry that I omitted him, he's actually the anchor for sort of the last five chapters in a way of the book, and especially, I guess it's the last, um, the, the chapter 18, second to last chapter. So Cruz is, is, you know, he's a remarkable figure. First of all, this is an autodidact, right? This is somebody who has a high school degree, and, um, you know, I mean, he concludes his career as a professor at the University of Michigan. I, I think he had a name chair. Um, at the end of his career. Oh, yeah, oh, of course, of course, tenured professor, but I mean an endowed chair. I mean, I, I believe he had an endowed chair at the end of his career. Um, so Cruz is born in Petersburg, Virginia. I mean, I'm working on this book about my Virginia ancestors, so, uh, you know, the Virginian thing is strong for me right now. Then he moves to, um, to New York and grows up in Harlem. He, he joins the Army and... Um, or I guess was drafted into the military. And he says that this is his moment of awakening in the 1940s when he's working as a supply clerk and he's in North Africa and he's constantly being approached by these people who want him to sell, you know, I guess it would sell gasoline and, you know, sort of other um, valuable supplies. He said he couldn't figure it out and then he said he got to Italy and it sort of continued and he, it, it, it sort of turned things around for him. He began to understand in some ways the relationship between East and West, North and South, these global relationships and global circuits of um, production and distribution of goods and services and in some ways the way that um, African Americans participated in this, or the, the some of the powers that they had. You all know that most of the black troops that served in the Second World War, where the U.S. Army was, um, you know, maybe at its most segregated, but most of them worked in service capacity. I mean, they had more opportunities to serve as combat troops during the First World War, really. So Cruz comes back to the United States, radicalized. He joins the Communist Party. Um, you know, the academic orthodoxy is that after the Second World War, the Communist Party, you know, the, the uh, enrollments go down, nobody is interested in what they have to say, and of course, you know, you've got to take a loyalty oath if you want a federal government job in the United States. We're having, um, you know, a McCarthy Senate committee, we've got a House committee that's active, you know, you're going to be called onto the carpet, and every one of your affiliations with the um, Communist Party or Communist Party-related groups or any person that's a known leftist. And bearing in mind that for white Americans, I mean, one, one way that they knew that you were communist was if you had black friends, right? Um, that, uh, that, you know, you were going to be um, exposed and, and poss possibly punished for this. 
And this was actually not true for so many black American writers and intellectuals who continue to need the, um, the left-wing organizations, political organizations and social organizations, to do things like work on the writing craft. Um, I'm sorry, back to Cruz. Cruz wants to become a, um, a uh, uh, drama critic, but he also wants to write plays. And he produces um, sort of like Broadway musicals. And the people in the CP, they keep saying to him, high-ranking black members, they keep saying to him, you know, man, you're, you, you, look, this, this, your theory is all wrong. You know, you're talking too much about this entertainment, and, uh, you know, you're showing too much joy in, you know, sort of the black idiom and in, you know, sort of the music of this thing. And, you know, this has got to be, we've got to have our ideology scientifically correct, right? This is the famous criticism from Ellison's novel, Invisible Man. And Cruz, um, you know, he's trying to learn how to get into um, film. He takes courses, uh, you know, sort of like with um, becoming a film technician, audio technician, and he says for, for him, the crowning indignity is when they're in this, uh, this group, it's called the Harlem, the uh, Committee for Negroes in the Arts, and they're performing plays written by African Americans. And he says he's constantly forced out of the room where they're workshopping plays, and they say, look, you know, we're not going to look at your play today, you go guard the door. And he says that you know, the reason why this stings so, so much is because Cruz is a brown-skinned black man with, again, limited access to formal education. I mean, a high school degree in the 1940s was a considerable achievement. But that he is being pushed to the margins by a, you know, the Communist Party, which is a workers' party, right? It's supposed to be a party for the workers, in favor of black Americans like Lorraine Hansberry, whose father, um, you know, takes case to the Supreme Court, who's a well-to-do realtor, and, you know, Hansberry grows up, you know, I mean, she, she, she talks about how complex this experience is, and I don't, I don't mean to, um, you know, make a, a cheap generalization, but, you know, who's, who's uh, uh, arrayed in furs and, uh, you know, could go to the school of her choice, in fact, goes to uh, University of Wisconsin for some of her, um, you know, sort of college experience. And he says, you know, they, they, they want these African Americans from the middle class, and they're interested in blacks from the middle class, and, you know, they don't have any room for me. But instead of, you know, sort of, I mean, he's, he's known as a, as a somewhat bitter person. But instead of, you know, just sort of giving himself over to bitter, bitter, bitterness, Cruz then turns to, you know, this remarkable study, this exhaustive study of um, um, African-American history. It's a critical study. It has a theoretical edge. And he's actually producing the magnum opus is called The Crisis of the Negro Intellectuals, published in 1967. But he's actually generating these ideas in the 1950s and engaging in debates with African-American intellectuals over things like black identity. And Cruz is saying, look, in, he says this in 1957, 1958. He says that black Americans are a domestically colonized group of African people out of Africa. This is completely vanguard for the time. Now, what's interesting is that the Communist Party at one time had a, uh, a theory about um, African-American identity that in some ways is influenced by the work of Joseph Stalin, but it's the theory of a man named Harry Haywood. And in, 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 um, at different moments, the Communist Party, they sort of back it strongly, and then sometimes they step away from it. But the idea was that basically African-Americans, when the communists take over the country took place, they were to be allowed the right of self-determination, and they could be a nation within a nation, especially in the historic, it's really the old cotton belt, you know, but these are the areas that were supposed to be, you know, like a homeland for African Americans. And so you can, you can, you can definitely understand that Cruz's ideas are shaped by this thesis, but, but what he comes up with, and the Communist Party abandons this in 1956, but what he comes up with is basically a theoretical position for black intellectual militancy and, 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 and really one that's second to none. And I, I, don't, I don't believe um, that, um, I mean, I'm sure he, he ultimately reads Franz Fanon, but this isn't necessarily, you know, being influenced by people from overseas who are generating some of these ideas. I mean, this is a, a sort of a homegrown, um, um, strident black nationalism and with, a, with very uh, strong historical and theoretical backing. And it leads to the publication of his, um, his book in the later 1960s. Now, it, it, there, was a, there was a group that included people like John Henry Clark and um, Ernest Kaiser. Ernest Kaiser is the famous librarian from the Schomburg, Schomburg Library. 
And uh, of course, Clark is a um, is a well known writer who um, perhaps you know might be best known to maybe even to us in the room, but to modern generations as one of the proponents of Afrocentrism during the 1980s. This is when I met Dr. Clark at Ohio State in 1992, and then I interviewed Dr. Clark uh, when I was doing my Ralph Ellison biography because Clark knew he knew everyone. He was a bibliophile, and um, they had a famous sort of contretemps with. Um, with Harold Cruz in the 1960s because Cruz thought that um, people like Clark were too closely allied to the um, to white liberals. And um, some of them, most of them, um, you know, sort of old communists, um, Herbert Aptheker in particular. But Cruz was one of these people who advocated, you know, sort of like total independence, you know, sort of from the, uh, the liberal elites, from the communist party, and um, from basically people that he understood as being black assimilationist. But I, I try to, to um, use um, uh, Brother Cruz, who I had the opportunity to meet. Um, in fact, uh, Harold Cruz was the keynote speaker at the first academic conference where I ever presented my work at Temple University in 1990, 1991. And um, this was really one of our um, remarkable, marvelous figures who, who only very recently, fairly recently, left us. But he is very much in the book. He's very much in the book. Thank you for coming. Yes, sir. Good evening. First, I'd like to thank you for an excellent lecture. I've just learned a lot, and I didn't even get here on time, so excuse me. But actually, you've spoken a little bit about uh, the question that I had uh, in reference to Dr. John Henry Clark, and you've just given up a few tidbits that you know I had never heard. I just want to know, are there any uh, other you know, literary sources or sources out there where I can look up some information? I'm quite sure you have some in your book, or could you just speak for a few minutes on some of his background and how Dr. Clark fits into the scheme of your book? Um, in, a, in a total way, I mean, this is really the spirit of what I tried to do. I mean, I, I wanted to deal with the major figures. I, I felt like in some ways some of the stuff that had been was going as gospel about Richard Wright and James Baldwin was a little bit, a little, a little off-centered, and I wanted to try to recenter some discussions about them. There are major figures like Langston Hughes that I really don't deal with at all in the book because we have, we have a, a we've got Langston Hughes Society. We have um, a, a a good bedrock of information about people like that. We have very very little about Dr. Clark, and. Um, Dr. Clark's papers are at the Schomburg Library. So in some ways, it is a project that awaits um, a talented and, and creative writer. Um, John Henry Clark is born, I think it's Holly Springs, Alabama, and uh, then he grows up for part of his early life in Georgia. And who, he, he gives himself the middle name Clark. He wants to, he's modeling himself after Ibsen. He wants to be, you know, sort of a major creative writer. He publishes um, poetry. And uh, see, like in the early 1940s, he has a, um, it's one of his only fiction, fiction pieces that comes out in NAACP Journal, The Crisis, and it's called Santa Claus Wasn't a White Man. Or <laughs> you know, but... Um, Dr. Clark, had a, he just had a wonderful spirit. I mean, he was a very, very generous man. He served for Julian Mayfield. Mayfield's about 10 years younger than um, Dr. Clark. And he served for Julian Mayfield almost as his, like, his literary secretary and agent when Mayfield moved to Puerto Rico in the early 1950s because they both were involved with the Harlem Writers Guild, and Clark had also been involved with the Harlem Writers Club. The Harlem Writers is a difference. The Harlem Writers Club is, is, is actually um, Harold Cruz, um, bless you, John Henry Clark, and a guy named Benjamin Brown that goes on to become the head of the Brooklyn branch of the Congress of Racial Equality in the second half of the 50s and through the 1960s. They're looking for independent black voice, spirited voice. This is the group that Ralph Ellison says that, you know, he more or less says that they're not sophisticated enough for him you know, in 1949. And, and in fact, the cover of the book, this is, a, uh, this is the cover of Harlem Writers uh, Quarterly. This is the 1949 um, um, issue of the journal. Um, but the thing that's so magnificent about a number of these journals that come out of the 1940s, they are completely diasporic in their point of view. So, I mean, you know, again, you're going to have representation from 
West Africa, you're going to have representation from the Caribbean, and you're going to get, um, you know, sort of uh, black leftists, you're going to get black artists, you're going to get politics and art. It's a wonderful fusion, um, very alert and, and very intellectual. But they only get out two issues, and they were having a hard time with this issue of how much support they were going to get from the Communist Party. And then eventually, the sort of the CP support shifts to this group, the Harlem Writers Guild, which is uh, um, directed in some ways by John Oliver Killens, another one of our really, one of our, our, our sleeping giants. I mean, a giant maybe that's, that's standing up um, as a new biography on John Oliver Killens that, that has a little bit about Clark in it um, by Keith Gilliard. I, I can't tell you exactly what the title is, but it's John Oliver Killens' biography by Keith Gilliard. And Killens is, uh, you know, another one of these these major figures that we just don't know a whole lot about, though the John Oliver Killens papers actually are at Emory University, and I used them as much as I could when I was sort of preparing my work. One thing that Killens is known for is the Black Writers Conference um, that's hosted by Medgar Evers um, College in Brooklyn, New York. And I've spoken at this conference a couple times. I'm going to Medgar Evers in two weeks, in fact. Um, but, you know, saying that to say that we still have really so much work to do with Clark, Clark is in the Writers Guild, um, friends with, um, with Mayfield. They have a, a literary exchange. And then Clark, in some ways, comes on the scene as a, as a better-known writer, not just an organizer, not just a librarian, not just one of the fixtures at the different Harlem writers' clubs and Harlem libraries. In the, um, in the very early 1960s, when he, he goes to, um, I believe he went to Ghana as well, but I know he spends a lot of time in Nigeria, and he sends letters back, you know, sort of an African-American in, in Nigeria, you know, and he's constantly being mistaken, but he said it didn't have language, and, you know, that was very frustrating, and, you know, he sort of talks about the course of events. The, um, the, uh, the great debate, in a sense, with um, Harold Cruz from the uh, famous 1964 conference, um, sort of the Negro artist dialogue that's organized by um, John Oliver Killens and Lorraine Hansberry and that involves John Henry Clark, where Clark is still um, very closely connected to Herbert Apthecker. Er, Herbert Apthecker is a Jewish-American who was actually a, um, an officer who led black troops during the um, Second World War. And Apthecker is a, is a, is a Brooklyn-born person. I think Apthecker went to Columbia. Um, I interviewed Apthecker before, before he passed, shortly before he passed. And um, Apthecker is the great pioneer, I say contemporary, meaning within the last 60 or 70 years, the great contemporary pioneer of black slave revolts. So he always sort of has like a hallowed place among, you know, some black historians and uh, black activists because this is one of the first people that actually published some stuff, you know, sort of that people could use. This is one of our great struggles. You know, I mean, you all, how many times do we hear if you want to keep a secret from someone, you know, you put it in a book. And, um, um, and this, is very, this is very true relative to so, so many of the nuances in, in black history. The, for, for example, I named my son, uh, my father's name was Nathaniel, but I also named him after Nat Turner because I wanted him to have a sense of the uh, commitment and spirit of revolt. Um, we think of the Nat Turner Rebellion, you know, as being sort of the biggest uh, conflagration that takes place in in North America. When I was doing the Ellison research in the 1990s, I was at the um, Oklahoma Historical Society, and there was evidence they they it was during the WPA um, era. But I ran across some reports that said that there had been this huge slave revolt, and that the people got as far as Oklahoma, and that it was actually U.S dragoons that came out to put down the slave revolt. And it was, it was not only enslaved African Americans, it involved some Native Americans as well. But it seemed to have been the kind of thing that involved hundreds of people. You know? So, I mean, again, you, we, when, we, when we dig, there are rewards for the digging. Clark is one of the people that, that, that did a lot of the digging. During the black arts movement, I think that Africa became much more important for him, and then he, you know, put his whole heart really in sort of uh, the, the, the argument, the debate about ancient history and black history. But the, but the person, you know, who's right along with him is uh, um, Chancellor Williams, who is also publishing in... Um, in Crisis Magazine, putting out pamphlets in the 1940s. They're all in the, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't name the name of this group that they have. They have, a, um, they have a writer's group and a reading group that's out of the YMCA 
in the uh, 1940s and 1950s. But they're all sort of part of this milieu, and then they, they, they make a shift. You know, Chancellor Williams' uh, destruction of black civilization is going to come out in the early 1970s. But this is a guy who's actually been on the scene and been interested in serious creative writing by that point for almost 40 years. You know? So they, everybody has the same long history. We've got papers at the Schomburg. Keep asking people from this side of the uh, lectern to do more of the work um, and, and um, I don't know, we keep pushing forward for it. You know, I'd like to see some important work on, on, on Clark as well. Yes, sir. Uh, what was the participation of the writers that you featured uh, in your book with the WPA uh, Writers Project? They actually had, um, I mean, this, was, this, is, this is really sort of the major thing that takes place. Um, for, um, in some of its divisions, the um, the uh, Work Progress Administration is operates in an integrated fashion in in some of its divisions in some places. The Federal Writers Project, which is created, excuse me, in 1935 after a series of activist protests, almost always includes black writers. The bureau chief is Sterling Brown, and he gets the appointment with the um, uh, the leveraging of uh, Elaine Locke, and um, it would have involved a couple of the other members of what what came to be you know Roosevelt's Black Cabinet: Mary McLeod Bethune and uh, Robert Weaver and Housing and some of the other folks. Um, in the South, it's very difficult for them to keep the appointments. So, like in Oklahoma and Florida. Um, they sometimes identify somebody who can work on the uh, writer's project, but they say, well, you know, we don't have the segregated facilities here, so we can't employ the person. Or we're only going to have the person work, you know, once a month or something. In Chicago and New York, you have the largest numbers of blacks participating. And in it seems like Chicago probably has the, the most um, integrated functioning unit. I mean, it is a nest for the, the most important writers. So it's Richard Wright, Margaret Walker. It's going to include Arna Bontomps. It might have included William Attaway. We've had this debate over whether or not, you know, sort of he's involved in it. Seems to include uh, Willard Motley. In other words, I mean, all of these major prose stylists basically are, I mean, in Walker's case, she's able to graduate from college and get a job as a writer. I mean, which is it's just basically it's unheard of. It's almost impossible for it to take place as a creative writer. So, you know, this, this is a, a very important sort of germinal period in New York. Um, Claude McKay, Ralph Ellison, Roy Otley, the journalist, um, Ellen Terry, uh, a couple of other names. I mean, I tried to be as exhaustive as I could gives them an opportunity. I mean, Ellison is not even a published writer, really, when he gets on the Federal Writers Project in New York. And they enable, they enable Richard Wright to transfer, and it's because he has the assurity of, um, of the job with the Federal Writers Project that he's able to produce uh, Uncle Tom's children and Native Son. You know, so, I mean, in other words, these are works that it would have been just, it would have been, you know, you need this leisure time to sort of do it. And uh, you, it helps to have some other writers to talk about technique with. It's, it's hard to see how it would have been possible on, under, you know, sort of um, if that hadn't been in place. There's another thing. I mentioned this Julius Rosenwald Foundation. This is one of the people that's one of the original Sears um, managers, you know, one of the original founders of the Sears Roebuck um, Company. And uh, Rosenwald wants to change the conditions for African Americans in the South However, after giving the money, he finds that, um, you know, really not able to change so much if you don't have access to the libraries and if your teachers are only educated through the fourth grade. And he sort of says, look, you know, this thing about opening schools in the South is just it's not working the way we thought. And they decide that what they're going to do is they're going to spend the principle of the investment. You know, the Carnegie and Guggenheim, they're around today because they're only spending a fraction of this endowment, right? They spend the, uh, the interest, basically, right? That's how they keep going. I mean, they're in it to make money in some ways, you know. They want to last in perpetuity. But Rosenwald says, look, we're going to give you 20 years, and we're going to spend up all the money, and we're going to see what kind of difference that we make. This pushes, it's a giant step forward, you know, you have that. And, and then, um, you know, you also have um, the, uh, the Communist Party, which is enabling people, I mean, Harold Cruz, Richard Wright, 
in these groups, in these uh, the publishing organs that they have, they have the opportunity to be published for the first time. I mean, Ralph Ellison is published for the first time and then becomes a critic because of, you know, what's basically the mainstream Communist Party cultural journal, New Masses. You know, Richard Wright is in the John Reed Club that then becomes, you know, more, more or less a Communist Party organ, and that's where, you know, he sort of earns his credentials as a, as a writer. It, it, was a, it was a very interesting, um, uh, again, I'll use the word fusion, this coming together of, of uh, government, of, uh, you know, sort of private endowments and um, activist politics. That, that was unique for the time. Good evening. Hi, I'm Dolan Hubbard from Morgan State University. I very much enjoyed your talk, and I look forward to reading your book. I would just like to make a quick observation. I said it with Richard Barksdale at the University of Illinois. He and Kenneth Kinnaman wrote a book called Black Writers of America. And Dr. Barksdale used to talk about, you mentioned about the languages. And he used to talk about people like Sterling Brown and um, County Cullen and others who went to the Ivy League. And he said the reason those gentlemen did not earn the doctorates well, not because of the intellectual firepower. I guess you would say in the, in the language of the 18th century, they were not men of the landed gentry, so they could go to Europe and take the grand tour and get these languages under their belt because Barksdale said he almost lost his mind earning his doctorate at Harvard. He was the second black to earn his doctorate exactly. at Harvard. And he said what saved him was a man by the name of Adolf Hitler. And by that I simply mean that he said Hitler scared America because particularly north of Maryland, we had a very entrenched what, German influence. And he said, had there not been Hitler, we might, more Americans may have been speaking more English and German. And he said, at that point, the academy sort of took a back step and then began to think in terms of what we call American literature, American history. It sort of changed their paradigm. And so that's some of the missing pages that we don't get in the history books. Very, Thank much, you. very much so. Very uh, wonderful point. Thank you. Thank you. Because Thank you. I'm drawing from Barksdale with the uh, passage about the, uh, the old Icelandic and the old Germanic and the rest of that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, thanks so much for coming out. Um, I, I hope you enjoy the book. I hope you enjoy the book. <laughs>